Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome love. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Claudia Bushman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. It's a lovely day in Provo, Utah. We just got uh, got back from uh, Utah, went there for a conference, and uh, my first time in Salt Lake City, and spent two days in Provo, and it is a beautiful place. And I appreciate you being on with us today. For those who... I assume almost all of my listeners will know who Claudia Bushman is, but for those who don't, uh, Sister Bushman is one of the editors uh, of the book Mormon Women Have Their Say. Uh, Sister Bushman, if you don't mind for just a moment, share with my listeners maybe a little bit of your, maybe a brief bio just so people know who you are uh, in other regards as well. All right, let's see. Um, I'm um, one of the aged um, feminists in the church, except I don't use that word because I think it's too polarizing. So I, but I have been interested in women's issues for a very long time. Um, getting involved in them back in the 60s and 70s when the whole thing was coming uh, up in the public consciousness. And I was um, going to graduate school at that time and decided I might as well um, study female studies. Nobody was studying those things at that time. And um, it was about that same time that a group of women in Boston got together uh, just to talk about our lives in the church. Um, we talked about all sorts of things, and, and then we started doing projects, and we did the pink issue of Dialogue, and we did the book um, Mormon Sisters, and we did that from um, a course we had done for the Institute program, about uh, Mormon women in the past, and then we started Exponent 2. So I feel like I was there at the beginning, and uh, it was a great, great ride. I've met lots of wonderful people over the years, and it's amazing to think how many years have passed since then. So now I'm one of the old feminists. Well, that's 
it's interesting to hear all of that. And I, I, uh, want to throw in that having looked over this book and read several chapters of it, I am, I was deeply touched by the way this book approached women's issues. Would you mind? We talked to Carolyn Klein last week and these, your interview and her interview will kind of go out at the same time and perhaps even be connected to each other, uh, in kind of a, a discussion of this book. But would you mind sharing with us what all went into putting this book together? Well, um, all these things have long stories. And the story of this one is that the year before I started um, teaching Mormon studies at Claremont, I was in the library. And there is a large, that's in San Marino, California, and there's a large collection there of documents that really aren't even aren't even cataloged. I think they are the things that Juanita Brooks gathered when she was an agent for the Huntington. And there are lots of first-person uh, Mormon women from southern Utah um, of about the 30s or before then, um, going back to pioneer days. And uh, I managed to find out about those and have them brought up. And as I read through these things, I thought, oh, these are so I wish we had some voices like this about um, of our own day, where women were really honestly talking about the issues in their lives. And so uh, when we got a grant at Claremont to do, quote, something for women, unquote, uh, we talked about a lot of possibilities and decided that we would do an oral history project. And I think, um, I think that's a very valuable kind of project because it's good for everybody involved. It was very good for the students to work through all the processes of setting it up as a class. Uh, and also they learned how to do oral histories. They did many of them. Uh, it was very good for the people who were interviewed because it gave them a sense of the value of their own lives, and which most women in the church do not have. You know, then many of these women would be silent, would never say anything. And uh, here they're saying a whole lot. So it was good for them, and it's also good for the future. I'm a historian, and I think that it is one of our responsibilities as historians to create some primary documents as well as using the things that other people have left for us. So I think these are wonderful primary documents. I think they're solid gold. Every time I read one, I'm just thrilled, as you must be. Weren't you really impressed by those voices that came through? I was. I was very much so. In fact, uh, I'll even just say something that Carolyn uh, Klein shared in her interview, which was that 100 years from now or 300 years from now, when people want to know what Latter-day Saint women were thinking uh, today, they're going to have an awesome resource to go back and see what the sisters uh, of this uh, generation uh, felt about their faith and the issues and struggles that they had. Absolutely. They will have something to read that they can say. This is how they really felt. And anyway, every time I think about it, it's very satisfying to me because I feel what we have is signed, dated statements. They may not be the way that somebody would describe their lives next month or even tomorrow, but they, this is what they had to say. Yeah, and these statements, I mean, to me, the book is courageous. I don't, I don't think the book on any level is offensive, but these sisters were bold in talking about the things that they were concerned about, the the issues that were on their mind, in the framework in which they saw them. Uh, it just, the book doesn't pull any punches, but at the same time, uh, I think it's an important work that gives us a way to, 
to really see what, what the sisters of the church are thinking about and the things that were on their mind and the things that, frankly, that trouble them and the things that they find happiness in. That's right. And I think it is important that what we are saving is what they have to say, not our understanding of what they have to say, but right. what they actually said. So, And it is also important that um, that these can be mined for many, many purposes into the future. This book is just the first fruit. People are always having to get get hold of these <laughs> documents. I'm a little, I'm not really ready to give them up. I don't, uh, anyway, I know what they represent. It's lots of private lives and lots of things. But, uh, it is, I'm glad you appreciate them because I think they are marvelous. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should really be proud of your work. I, I wanted, in the interview with Carolyn, we talked about the two chapters that she uh, was specifically over. So I wanted to bring out a few other things in the book and just ask you about them and maybe get your thoughts on two or three of these uh, these essays or these um, statements by the sisters in our, in our faith and see what you thought. So the first one I pull out is on page 119. And to set this up before the quote comes, this is what it says. It says, just as frugality was common, was a common characteristic of Mormon womenhood, the antithesis of this concept was Mormon women who refused to be engaged in fiscal responsibility. A common theme was responsibility of women to at least be able to provide for themselves and their families. As Margot explains, I am all for birth control. I don't know what the church standing is now, but I feel that you should not have children that you can't afford to keep. When we were on our mission, there was one lady at church that had about a tenth or twelfth child and living on government welfare. She said that she was fulfilling church teachings because you are supposed to keep having children. To me, that is one thing scoffing at another because the church also teaches that you need to be independent. If you can't be independent, then I don't think you can you can be expected to have children that you can't afford to provide for. Now, I don't want to I don't even want to discuss the the issue of birth control, but what I want to get at that that quote drives home to me is that so often in the church, as members of the church, we have a we have a story, we have a framework that we see the church within. And oftentimes it places more importance on one principle over another. So in this situation, there's some sister in the church who feels like uh, giving these spirits who are waiting in the pre-existence bodies trumps the fact of her being able to provide for them and be self-sustaining and all of those other things that were taught. And yet what this sister points out is that the gospel is a lot more complicated than that, that oftentimes if we stop seeing things black and white, that we'll start to see that there are, there's more intricacy, more uh, complicatedness in these issues. And I think it's one of the things the book drives home is that when you walk away reading it, you realize how complicated or nuanced the gospel is and life is in general. Uh, any thoughts from you on that? Well, I certainly agree with that. And uh, I, what is also interesting, and it's an extension to that, is that these uh, these um, oral histories are in time, set in time and place. And there are changes that have taken place in the church's policies over the period of these women's lives. And certainly this fertility and birth control, abortion thing, is one of the big ones where issues about Mormon women have changed. You know, I'm old enough to remember when we really heard from the pulpit, have as many children as you can, do not uh, limit your families, da-da-da-da, start immediately. 
and uh, you know, you just don't hear that anymore. Well, there are reasons for that which we don't have to go into, but there have been big changes in policy. You don't hear any of that anymore. This is one of the several big issues that we see real change in over the time of this thing, these people's experience. And also, there are big issues and there are small issues uh, that take place in, over a short time. For, for instance, many of these were done in Southern California, so we've got a lot of really strong stuff about Proposition 8 for and against. Everything is historically based. So, But anyway, say some more about birth control if you want, or abortion. Big issues. Well, the, here's my thought. As you're sitting there talking, I guess the, the biggest... One of the bigger issues that Latter-day Saints struggle with is trying to figure out the difference between doctrine, policy, opinion, and what you're speaking at about things changing, things that were very heavily sermonized or preached 25 years ago or 30 years ago. Today, we, we see things differently, and oftentimes members of the church maybe don't even grasp that, you know, sometimes, um, what's the best way to put it, that what was once... A doctrine is only a doctrine until it changes, and once it changes, it was just a policy. There's a lot of confusion at times for Latter-day Saints trying to figure out what the doctrine of the church is, and a lot of this book speaks to that nuance of things being one way at one time and today being much different. Yes, and you see them thinking for themselves, working out these issues for themselves with their own circumstances. That's one of the things I like the best about it. I say that's doctrinal creation. But the, your bigger subject, that is one of great interest to me. I think I heard recently that in Bruce McConkie's book, uh, there were 500 doctrines that were identified. Well, I was surprised it was that many. <laughs> but I think right. 100 is too many. And so, uh, and my recent feeling about this is, well, uh, we have all these rules, doctrines, principles, uh, covenants and, you know, so on, laws, and uh, which are the important ones? How do they weigh against each other? And so I had to give a talk in church recently, and I said, we'll just use a metaphor from the kitchen, and we'll take the most important ingredient from every one of these lists. And, of course, this is, you know, just the craziest thing to do, but I said, they always list the first thing, the most important ingredient first. So I took the Ten Commandments, I took the Articles of Faith, I took the Sacrament Prayers, I took Baptismal Prayers. I said, see, there's only one doctrine, belief in Christ. And uh, if we would just all do that, everything else would fall into place, we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. So there were a lot of people that thought that that was a refreshing take on that particular subject. So I submit that. I figure if we would just all pay attention if we would just have no other thoughts before. I think the eternal Father, we would probably all be a lot better off and our lives would be simpler. Certainly women's would be. Women are really great victims of these terrible long lists of things we should do and have to do. They just um, they just always feel behind. They always beat themselves up. They, um, they just, um, you know, can't ever be good enough by their rules. But of course, I say... You don't want to be too good. If you're too good, then you're on your way to being a Pharisee and being a proud person. And we all know that's the worst thing you can do. So, there it is. Good to see right. right. We were, uh, I had a guest over for dinner tonight. We were sitting talking about, I don't know if you're familiar with Brad Wilcox's talk on grace, 
that he did at BYU a, a few years ago. And essentially what he does in his talk is he does away with this idea that we have to do so much work, that there's a bar set, that we have to do so many things before we can um, make it back to Heavenly Father, and that grace plays a much bigger role than sometimes we as Latter-day Saints think. And as you were speaking there towards the end and talking about women thinking there's these list of things they have to do, as I was giving a lesson on that talk and showing the video of the things that he had said, several sisters in the room were in tears because for the first time ever, somebody told them that forget about the bar, just do your best. God's grace is there. He loves us. He's trying to help all of his children come home and stop sweating the idea that you have to do all this these things on a checkoff list before you can get back to Heavenly Father. That's great. Um, Chieko Okazaki, who is one of my favorite preachers, uh, in her book, Lighten Up, says, God wants you the way you are right now, not in 20 years, not a perfect you, not somebody else who wants you. I think that's a very helpful kind of a doctrine. I want to, the next one that caught my eye, and lots of things caught my eye, but the three I wanted to talk to you about, the next one is on page 132 of the book. And I want to set this one up as well. And so there's a little a little heading here above the quote. But it says, After a woman accepts a calling, her name and calling is announced in sacrament meeting, and the congregational members are given the opportunity to approve the call by raising their hands in support. They may also raise their hands in opposition to the calling, although such actions are rare events. And then we get the quote uh, from the sister from one of these essays. You just have to realize that when you raise your hand to support people, what you're basically saying is, these are fallible human beings. I'm going to support them in these callings despite the fact that they are fallible human beings. They are going to grow in their callings. They are going to get better. But they need the members to be patient with them as they make errors. We have to be patient with people and their errors because, we, because we're making them at the same time too. That's how we support each other, through patience and our human fallibility. I thought that was gorgeous. I, I almost wonder if we should read that every... You know, once a year in sacrament meeting, just so that people realize that when they raise their hand to sustain, what kind of um, what kind of effort that means should follow up after that calling is uh, is sustained in sacrament meeting. Uh, any thoughts from you on on the idea behind members uh, being more supportive of each other and looking past shortcomings? I think that's a great idea, and I hope they read it next time that they sustain me for some kind of a job. I think uh, what we do, I mean, the end thing in our um, in our teachings, in our church business, the important thing is not the end, the, pro- the event that we're planning, the uh, talk that we give or anything like that. It's the working together to prepare for it. And I think it is so important if we can just learn to get along, not have um, polarized groups, not have contention, not um, do backbiting or anything like that. I think the greatest thing is to have the creation of a harmonious Mormon people. And if we have that kind of um, sympathy and understanding, sensitivity to other people's concerns, I think we are well on our way to doing it. I love that quote myself. I'm very glad that you picked that one out. And it's certainly true. We all believe it, yes. At least we believe it when somebody isn't stepping on our toes. Right. Often in wards and stakes, whenever somebody falls short or doesn't uh, doesn't seem to be magnifying a calling, or we think we can do better in it, there's such a a rush to to gossip or backbite. And, and yet, what the sister points to is that we really all need to realize we are all imperfect. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
and to, to rather than pick on or belittle or to talk behind someone's back, so much better it is to strengthen the feeble knees and to lift the hands that hang low. Right, and I would like to say that in our, our church organization, we have so many, so many strains pouring down from on high. That is, all power, all authority, all instruction comes from on high. And what is more important, I think, for us to do in congregations is to make lateral connections to help each other and to work together. I think, and, and again, I feel that way particularly about women. It's, um, we just have to support and help each other in our jobs, not be critical. We're all learning about the bone so on. I want to finish off. There's one other one I wanted to draw attention to, and this is on page 225. And I want to set this one up a little bit too, but it's kind of a long paragraph, but uh, we'll go ahead and read this. It says, One last internal strategy I observed in the women interviewed was to retreat emotionally and spiritually from church when there was a disagreement with male church hierarchy. This seemed to happen most often when the church was grappling with serious social issues of the day and in the minds of some coming up short. For one woman, it was a period in the 60s and 70s when blacks were denied the priesthood. She was deeply distressed, and that nearly drove her to inactivity. For others, it was the women's movement in the 70s which made them fundamentally question a church's judgment in guiding its people on these social issues. Lynn describes her spiritual retreat during the church's campaign against the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is the quote. It says, I was not happy with what the church was doing. I was not persuaded by the arguments or the assertions in their anti-ERA pamphlet, such that I thought, that's it. I continued to be Mormon, but in a very different way, whereas before, when I was a child, I had questions like, this is true, how is it true? It basically made me say, wait a second, some of it might be true, and some might not be true. I had to start thinking about every single thing. I remember talking to a woman in my ward here, and she said, that's exhausting, don't you think it's better to just accept it all? It's just too exhausting. I said, I can't, not anymore, and live with any kind of integrity. And I want to phrase my question this way and use that question, that's the quote as a backdrop. Today in the church, there are lots of members. My podcast, uh, this podcast serves to, to help members who are struggling with a paradigm that no longer works, which is exactly what this sister is speaking to when it came to these issues. And often when members encounter new information that doesn't fit, or as they grow in experience and wisdom, encounter an issue that they no longer agree with the stance that they perceive that the church has, they struggle, they feel anguish, they feel a term that we use recently called cognitive dissonance. And because my podcast serves to help people who are struggling, I wanted to get your thoughts on how you deal with personally navigating a journey in the church where on one hand you have fundamental things that that were called, uh, in a sense, to believe and to be part of the church, but on the other hand having some issues or things that arise where where we disagree and don't see eye to eye maybe with the, the church's policy or stance. Of course, I've, I was born in the church. Church is uh, one of my major identities. I, because of that and my extensive uh, experience, I've I've seen some very unfortunate things in the church where people were got puffed up or whatever you say, where people were badly hurt, where people have done things that I think were not wise and were even criminal. I've seen a lot of those things. Um, but I've always had the strong feeling that 
we are just people doing the best we can or not doing the best we can. But still, that what we've got is a very powerful, beneficial uh, community. And what I tell people who think they're ready to leave the church is, don't go until you find something better. And I don't know what else they can find. I don't see them any happier outside of the church. I see um, continued pain. And um, I think we have to try and forgive the people that we work with if they do something that's unfortunate. We have to do our best and not hurt each other. And uh, when we find out something that uh, is alarming to us, but my husband's uh, plan is what he does in that case is go right to the middle of it. Don't try and get away from it. Don't try and ignore it. Just keep studying and go down to the bottom if you can and find out how that fits in with other things. And generally, he can find ways that um, he can deal with those issues. I think, um, I think there are some painful things that people discover about the history of the church because they have been told that things were better than they were. And I think that comes from my long experience as an isolated people uh, in the West where we could say most anything we wanted and um, many of the problems of our past were sort of edited out for the public consumption. But um, I wouldn't say the church is perfect. I mean, even the problems of... Uh, of uh, translating whatever is coming from heaven down to earth seems so impossible to me, and I'm sure there are mistakes in translation all the time, but um, I still feel that there are things there, and I feel that there is much goodness in the church. So I say, keep trying. Well, you know, the advice not to leave until you find something better, I think, is gorgeous. And, and one of the reasons I'm really drawn to that that thought is I, I know of lots of Latter-day Saints who, in trying to navigate these issues, uh, feel that exact same way as they look around and see people leaving the church. In their mind, they think, well, if the church isn't, isn't true, then leaving it should bring more happiness and joy and peace. And for many people, I, I think a large percentage of that group who leave, um, that's the case, that it's not a, a happier time outside the church, that things were better when they were in. And I just recently talked to uh, Maxine Hanks and Don Bradley, uh, two scholars in the church. Uh, I know Maxine left because of the September 6th issue, and, and Don left for, for several years as well. And both of them have returned to the faith, and both of them are grateful for that experience. And so I really appreciate the advice you, you add there, which is to hang on and and to try and sift through things, as you point out about your husband, Richard, try to sift through things, dig down. Somebody recently said it would be best if we could excavate doctrine to get to the root of things. And when we do, there's usually room for faith. And, and I appreciate you being on today. Um, Claudia Bushman, the one of the editors of Mormon Women Have Their Say. Uh, Claudia, where can people find your book? Well, um, you can get it from Benchmark Books, or you can get it from, well, I think the easy way is Amazon. Just jump for it. Um, it is available. And um, the co-editor is Caroline Klein, who's one of our doctoral students at Claremont. And I think that she would say, and all the people that were involved in this project would say that they have come a long way in learning about Mormon women's issues from their participation with this oral history project. And uh, again, I just want to say thank you for all the work that you and countless others have put into to put this together and, 
And I just agree with you 100%. This book is going to be important for generations. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you talking to me. Have a great night. All right. Good night. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood That day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above